Today is the first Sunday of our summer series, and if you've been with us for a year or more, you know that for the last few years we have done uh, serieses, I don't know, what's the plural, plural of series, uh, in the Psalms, and we call it Joy in the Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Um, so this is the first of the 2023 series, Joy in the Morning, and we are in Psalm 71. And Jonathan asked me, man, I guess it's been a couple of months ago, on July 23rd, would you do a, a message from the Psalms? So I just picked out for no particular reason. Well, there was a reason, which you'll catch on to soon. But I picked out Psalm 71, and it turns out it's an individual lament. So it's suitable for a series called Joy in the Morning. As I said, we've done that for the past few years, and uh, I think it's been to our benefit. Um, we will not be getting back to the Gospel of John until I believe it's after the first of the year. Jonathan has something different planned for the fall. You'll have to come and find out what that is. But uh, before I get into it, let me, I think I'm supposed to remind you of a few things. See, this is like second nature for Jonathan. I don't do this all the time. Um, but in your bulletin, you have <clears throat> the text for the morning. You have a um, list of those in need of prayer. And just like to make you aware that um, Alan and Janet Jager both had surgical procedures this past week. Alan, uh, hip replacement. Janet had something implanted for her spinal cord stimulator okay um, and we're praying for both of them that they will get relief from what has been a very painful season especially for Janet uh, and please note uh, Debbie is out of the office all this week Jonathan will be back Tuesday we have our prayer time at noon on Tuesday and there's a men's payer no, that's got to be a typo. Prayer, if you want to be a payer, that's all right, too. Uh, August 4th, which is a week from Friday at 7 p.m. Uh, and a women's breakfast. Well, I was going to get it if I didn't say this. Uh, 9.30, the morning of August 19th. All right, so I think you've got to sign up for that. Um, and how we do giving here. If you're committed to the mission of Redeemer Fellowship, uh, there is an online portal where you can give. You can put an offering in the box in the back. Um, I think those are the options. You can't give it to me. All right. I'm going to raise this just a bit. <clears throat> um, let me pray before we get into the message. Lord. Thank you for those here who are actively supporting the mission of this church, which we trust, Lord, is consistent with your desire for us. Lord, thank you that we can meet in this way. Thank you that you give us your word. Thank you that you have prepared for us 
something from your word today. We pray that you would help us all to glean what you have prepared. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1968. I was going to ask for a show of hands how many people were not even alive in 1968, but I don't want to know. I had just started my freshman year of college. My roommate was a guy who was more into music than I was, and he had recently purchased the recently released album by Simon and Garfunkel, Bookends. Bookends? Yeah, a few of you, okay. He played it almost constantly. Maybe some of you, obviously some of you are familiar with it. Now, one of the songs has been running through my mind for the past few weeks, pretty much ever since Jonathan asked me if I would do a message from the Psalms. And that song is Old Friends. One of the lines from that song, song has been running through my mind, uh, and maybe you know it. The line is, can you imagine us years from today sharing a park bench quietly? How terribly strange to be 70. When I first heard that, I was light years away from 70 on the other side. Now, wouldn't be such a bad idea to go back to 70. You can, you can do the math for yourself. <clears throat> being 70 was, the idea of being 70 was truly strange, and it seemed unimaginable to me, and I suspect to all who were my age then. That was 55 years ago, to be exact, and here I am, here we all are, if we were in college in 1968, thinking it wouldn't be too bad to go back to 70. Now, I should say that I'm aware this message might sound irrelevant to many here. I'm looking around, and there are people younger than I, significantly younger than I in some cases. Which is to say that we, the, the fact that it would sound irrelevant is to say that we're not predominantly a younger church. However, we are getting younger, I would say, as the Lord adds to our number. And we do have a thriving children's ministry. The other thought is that no matter how young you may be, you will one day be sitting or standing where I am, among the seniors in the group. And you'd do well to heed the admonition of the psalmist in Psalm 90. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's coming for you, like it or not. Nobody is forever young. So as we look at Psalm 71, you have the outline. I don't know how close I'm going to stick to the outline, but the first section of the psalm, the first six verses, I have called the psalmist's dilemma. Let's read those together. Actually, I'll read. You can listen. 
In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let, let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to, command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. The psalmist who wrote this psalm grappled with the reality of having reached the latter stage of his life and brings a great perspective to the season in which he found himself. But that comes a little bit later. The earlier portion finds him dealing with the reality of enemies, threats to his well-being on a level that few of us have ever experienced. In those first six verses, we have that description and the terminology that he uses. Rescue me from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. I don't think the psalmist was given to hyperbole. I think these were accurate descriptions of what he was facing. He jumps right into urgent appeals to God to come to the aid of his, his aid. And it's in the, in, at the end of a section of Psalms where, uh, just take a look back, if you happen to have the Bible, I do. These are all on the same pages. But um, first couple of verses of the last Psalms before this one, Psalm 69, save me, O God, o God for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. Psalm 70, make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. And then what we just read here in Psalm 71, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. No niceties, no mandatory words of praise or thanksgiving. He just jumps in with what's essentially help. Help, Lord. Not only that, but he's honest, some would perhaps say brutally honest, in his description of why he needs help. I read for you um, the description of his enemies, wicked, unjust, cruel. This might sound harsh coming from the psalmist, and it may be a reality that we have trouble relating to, but there are those who are enemies to all that is represented by Christ. We may be too nice to call it what it is, and we may even want, not even want to admit that we have enemies, but they are there, if for no other reason that Satan is out to get us. Those who represent the kingdom of Jesus, but the comforting truth of these first verses of the psalm is that God is a rock of refuge, my rock and my fortress. We don't know who wrote the psalm, but we do know that threats to the safety and well-being of those like David 
were quite real and present. Notice the language of verse 4. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. The psalmist is here pleading for rescue from an enemy who is described as wicked, unjust, and cruel. Now, I may have harbored such thoughts about other people at times, but the truth is that I generally can't claim my assessment of them is objective and accurate. Here, however, we have the psalmist, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Spirit, describing his enemy in the most unflattering terms, which suggests to me that there are such people in the world, probably in our own personal space. What do we do with terms like this? Didn't Jesus say to love our enemies? Well, there is much that could be said, and we can't always trust our own feelings about those who behave as enemies. But note that the psalmist here doesn't take things into his own hands. Instead, he appeals to the Lord to act on his behalf. This is consistent with Romans 12. You're probably familiar, many of you will be familiar with this, the last few verses of Romans 12. Beginning verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for... By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you you and I are injured or ill-treated, taking matters into our own hands can can go bad so easily. It is never wrong to appeal to God for justice, and ultimately, he will make all things right. Notice, too, that the psalmist makes a truly amazing claim in verse 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are here, he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Without getting distracted by the language here, can we acknowledge that those who were of the nation of Israel traced their origin as a people to the father of their nation, Abraham? And so, in a sense, to acknowledge that lineage was to say one's personal history began hundreds of years before he was born. Note in this respect, respect Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. You don't have to look it up. I actually put it in my sermon here. Psalm 22, 9 and 10, a psalm that was penned by David. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Whatever else this may mean, it is certain that the writer of this psalm gives credence to the purposes 
of the Lord, Lord God in eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, as we read in the 90th Psalm. But we need to move on to what I see as the heart of the psalm for those of us who are older. The psalmist's appeal, verses 7 through 16. <clears throat> I have been as, as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone." The psalmist describes himself as a portent to many. Now, the New King James has wonder there. Portent means a sign or warning that something, especially something momentous or calamitous, is likely to happen. He is a portent because of his enemies, apparently, hence the naming of Yahweh as his strong refuge. We assume the something momentous or calamitous is what would happen to him if not for the fact that God is his refuge. Or perhaps he is a portent to his enemies with the help of God as the warning to them. All the more reason for his mouth to be filled with praise for the one who is his refuge. In verse 9, the psalmist appeals to Yahweh to not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Here's where it begins to really hit home for me and perhaps for others here. I know, you know, that the body's physical strength is not what it once was. We had our 12-year-old grandson here a few weeks ago for the better part of a week for the purpose of helping out with a few projects around the house. Of course, I wanted to help him, not just tell him what needed to be done, but I ran into a problem. Whenever we finished a job, he'd ask, what's next? <laughs> and before long, I was gasping for breath. He never seemed to get tired. My strength was spent. The difference between a younger grandfather and a 72-year-old grandfather was huge. A few months ago, I was struck with what was happening to me as I age. Often, when realizations like that hit me, I moved to write as a way of thinking out loud, so to speak. And Here's, here's what I wrote on that occasion. Father, is there fear in me? 
fear of growing old and losing strength and ability to be active and work around the house. Is that more per pervasive than I might like to admit? Do not allow that fear to define me, but rather help me to see it as your gift, drawing me to you in prayer. Now, I can't claim that every time things like that hit me, I have that sort of response. But it would be good if I did. Uh, and on that occasion, I did. Just the, the realization that age was not going backwards. Never does. Recently, on the Desiring God website, John Piper posted the transcript of a message he, would, he had given to the older saints in the church he pastored for 33 years. Of the nine items he identified as potentially inciting fear for those of my generation, I'd like to mention just a few. I would recommend that you listen to the message or uh, read it, the transcript is there, and the title of it, appropriately enough, is Not Dead Yet. Here are three of the fears Pastor John mentions. Fear of insufficient finances. Will I outlive my money? Fear of being alone. Will I outlive all my close friends and family? Fear of being useless. Will I outlive my capacity to be useful? Maybe many of you can identify with one or more of those. In each case, Pastor John gives solid biblical strategies to combat the fear. And the key to them all is found in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? It's a classic example of argue, arguing from the greater to the lesser. God has already given us the greatest, most precious thing he has to give, his only son. Therefore, whatever we need for this life is assured. That doesn't mean we will have easy lives or that we will never be in pain or that hardship will never come knock, knocking at our door, but it does mean that we will have everything we need to live in such a way as to play, please our Heavenly Father. Or in the words of Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you don't get it, you don't need it. This could be a message all by itself, but we can't chase down all the implications of it right now. Please, check out the article. Listen to the sermon. Here in Psalm 71, the factor that gives a sense of urgency to the matter is the presence of enemies, real flesh and blood enemies who are after the psalmist's very life. We see that in verse, the last letter half of verse 10. And they are convinced that there is no deliverer, deliverer humanly speaking. The mistake these enemies make is their belief that God has forsaken him leaving him vulnerable to their evil designs. And then those two words that so often bring hope to us. But God has not indeed forsaken him, despite appearances to the contrary. 
You and I are only ever as vulnerable as God permits, and we are always under his watchful eye. Oh, there may be times when we go through pain and suffering, but it is never purposeless and never not noticed by our Heavenly Father. I have a very good friend who is suffering greatly as I speak with a list of physical ailments that is Job-like in scope and intensity. Some of you know who I'm talking about. But he regularly gives testimony to his confidence that despite the pain which, humanly speaking, is likely to end in his death, the Lord has not forsaken him and healing will come from his faithful God either in this life or the next. Indeed, the petitions of this psalm are fitting for his situation. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. It seems to me that verse 12 is a turning point in this psalm. From the urgency of feeling vulnerable and forsaken, the psalmist makes a conscious decision to reassert his confidence in God. Key to this is his determination to rehearse the activity of God on his behalf. In so doing, he makes a direct appeal to the Lord, reminds himself of his hope, and praises God verbally. Note that the psalmist resolves to praise without receiving assurances in advance that it will all be okay. This has to be based on his prior experience, his knowledge that Yahweh is always dependable, always as good as his word. And then the psalmist's confidence, the last eight verses. <clears throat> Beginning verse 17. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? You who, made, who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort, comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. For my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. So his confidence, he looks at what God will and then asserts what he will. You see, finishing well is about more than retaining your strength and health into older age. Being able to do at 70 what you did at 50 or 40 or amassing a large bank account or possessions, or leaving a legacy of creative art or a body of work that will outlast you. According to the psalmist here, 
It's about passing the faith on to the next generation so that they can do the same for the generation after that and the generation after that. And, well, you get the picture. It's about communicating values and love for the Lord and his kingdom and making sure that the handoff doesn't get fumbled. Many of you know, maybe most of you, that uh, Tim Keller, uh, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, uh, died of cancer just a few weeks ago. Um, He knew it was coming. And in the very last days of his life, I remember reading online, and I can't give you a reference for this, but you have to trust my memory. He was asked how he wants to be remembered. And what he said, one of the things he said was, I hope my grandchildren remember me. I was so struck with that because here's a man who has so sold, I'm pretty sure, millions of books, preached thousands of sermons, been prominent in the Christian evangelical world for decades, and one of the main things he wants to be remembered He wants his grandchildren to remember him. In a sense, those closest to you will remember you for good or for ill. And he wanted to be remembered by his grandchildren. One time, as I read through the Psalms, I noted every place where this principle of passing the faith on was articulated. Although I, I kept a list, but I can't find it anymore. So you're going to have to trust me on this. As I recall, it was a dozen places or more scattered throughout the Psalms. To me, that qualifies as a significant theme. Perhaps the most emphatic expression of this is in Psalm 78. If you want to just flip over a couple of pages, I want to read several verses from Psalm 78, the first eight. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Notice that this psalm specifically mentions at least four generations of God's people. Verses 5 and 6 show that. If we break it down, it includes two generations, at least two, yet unborn. The bottom line seems to be that this is of critical importance to Yahweh, which is why he told the Israelites through Moses in Deuteronomy 6 to diligently diligently teach their children in every context and at every time. It's not just about knowing who we are, 
but about knowing how we came to be part of God's family and how to keep the, the flame of our identity alive. I have the incredible advantage of having grown up in a solid Christian home. My father was a pastor. My mother was a believer. My children are now the fourth generation, at least, of Christians. We may not be materially wealthy, but we've been given a spiritual legacy that is worth far more. And if that is not descriptive of you, you may be the first generation of Christians in your family. It's a great time to start. And a few generations from now, somebody will be talking about your faithfulness in passing that faith on. Notice in this part, part of the psalm, and we're back to Psalm 71, that we read several statements expressing what the psalmist intends to do. The I wills of verses 14 to 16 Sandwich and 20 to 22 to 24, sandwiched around the you wills of verses 20 and 21. So in 14 to 16, we have, I will hope, I will praise, my mouth will tell, I will come, I will remind them. I will also praise you, I will sing praises to you, my lips will shout for joy, my tongue will talk of your righteous help. And all that is based on the two verses in between there where speaking about the Lord, you will revive me, you will bring me up, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. Without both of those elements, it's going to get fumbled, it's going to get dropped somewhere along along the line. We know that God is ultimately dependable. He will do what he has promised and he will help us to keep our commitments. Well, here's the point. It's not just the psalmist acting and expressing independently, but his response to the initiation of Yahweh. The psalmist is able to hope, tell, remind, praise and sing, and talk of Yahweh's help because the Lord does what is promised in verses 20 and 21. You will revive me. You will bring me up. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. Our God keeps his word. Of that, of that we can be sure. Do you, do I, believe that? Faith in God's keeping us, providing for us, demonstrating his love for us, means that in the words of John Piper again, You are going to be set free to think about other people and not just about your poor, aging self. That's the great outward need of people our age. We tend, this is is still John Piper, we tend to get together and all we talk about is how we hurt. We say, my eyes aren't right, my ears aren't right, my joints aren't right, my digestion is not right, nothing's right. But God wants to free me and you from being preoccupied with what's wrong and instead find ways to serve others. The result will be that God will get glory as our good works shine before others. Not only that, but we will be rewarded. I go to John Piper again for one last paragraph. 
picture the smallest, most hidden good deed you can do this afternoon. It's just some simple good that nobody knows about. This text, text says that God wrote it down. And he's referring to uh, Ephesians 6, 8. We know that whatever good anyone does, these, this he will receive back from the Lord. Um, <clears throat> the text says God wrote, wrote it down. He doesn't need to write it down because he doesn't forget anything. But on the last day, you will receive some reward. I don't know the nature of those rewards entirely. There is some way for your, for your future, for eternity, will be different and better because of that. That's useful. You're useful. The smallest thing is eternally significant. That's amazing. That really is in the Bible, he says. This is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. Allow me to conclude with a wonderful doxology we find in the last two verses of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, truthfully, it is or should be amazing to us that you even notice us, much less that you keep track of every tiny little good deed that we do and purpose to reward us in some way. Lord, that is truly mind-boggling. But that is the kind of God you are. Father, for any here who are struggling, dealing with the fears that we have spoken about, fear of being alone, fear of outliving finances, fear of being useless, Lord, would you... Come to each heart where that may be true and provide reassurance that no matter who we are, how insignificant we may think we are, that you have a purpose for us as long as we are here. May we embrace that truth and may we do so in a way that brings glory to you. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.